imagine if you move over and you see jobs saying no Irish people need apply, you're going to feel like you're a commodity, aren't you? You'd be like, what? I've got something that I can offer here and you don't want me to apply because of the country that I'm from. Are you happy? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to lead a team, an organization with happiness at the core of what it does? I would hope so. And today, that's what we're going to delve into as we explore the business case for happiness. But before we get into that, I have a very quick question for you. Have you ever told yourself, I don't think I can do this? Or they will never go for it? Or I am not a good enough leader? The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. At Mindset Shift, that's what we do. We help innovate, ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, for their business, for their culture, and for themselves. We help to unlock their growth. Through actionable coaching, workshops, leadership development programs, or facilitation, we create foundational people over profit environment, the kinds where productivity and innovation soar and culture and inclusion and equity sit at the heart of operations. If you're ready to step out the box and take your organization to the next level, contact us today to unlock your growth at www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Okay, let's get on with today's show. I'm at an event today. I don't know if the video's been recorded, but I've got a tired. So it feels like slightly normal again to be out doing a speaking gig and stuff like that. So hopefully we're at the end of the pandemic and me and you can go to the Caribbean together. <laughs> Woo, I look forward to that. <laughs> and yeah, the video is going to record it. So when people see this, they're going to be like, what's going on here? <laughs> this guy's oh, dressed up. I got dressed up for you, Shofi. That's what I should say. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm going with. That's what I'm going with. So it makes me feel a bit better. <laughs> on today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I'm talking to Matthew Fee who is the co-founder of the happiness index and the author of the brilliant book freedom to be happy the business case for happiness we'll get into the backstory of this brilliant man over the next hour but the first thing i wanted to know more about was what is a sea fireman and how has that helped shape who he has become today so that is, uh, that's the, I, no one's ever brought that up, apart from every now and then, someone messaged me and say, oh, were you a sea, sea fireman? That's an ironic post because I was a baggage handler at Harridge International Port. And when we used to go drinking afterwards, we used to have like high vis jackets, red trousers on. And people used to be like, oh, gosh, what, what do you do? And some of the boys used to say, oh, we're sea fireman. <laughs> But if you go to the LinkedIn post and you click on it, it's about on my job where it says sea fireman. It's about never lying about your job title because every single person that we told we were sea fireman knew straight away that we weren't sea fireman. But being a baggage handler is one of the best jobs I've ever had. And I have happy, have very happy memories, including um, trying to convince people we were sea fireman. Yeah, because when I read through the lessons, and you, that was your number one thing, don't lie about your role. <laughs> but actually, there was, num- there was a, one of the points you mentioned in there around data collection, which I found very interesting because then when you go from that role to, especially your roles in 4P's marketing, yeah, you can start to see the synergies between data collection. So how did you come up with those 11 statements, or should I say the rules that you had from 
it's called the C5 and phase. And how did that inform your decisions in life? Well, I found this thing out the other day, Shepard. I don't know if you knew this, but I only found it out the other day that the original version of meditation, if you go back to the Stoics, was, you know, if I say meditation now, most people think of someone like sitting on a mountain doing this, don't they? Just going, mm-hmm. one of the original thing, like the original definitions of meditation and, and stoicism was, was journaling. So to go back to that, I write stuff down. I just, as I learn stuff, I write it down and then I go back to my notes. So a lot of those things that you're seeing, they're from, I will write stuff down and I won't do anything with it and I'll come back years later. And sometimes I read stuff I've written. I'm like, what were you on that day? Like, like that was just a load of rubbish. Because sometimes you make an observation that's really obvious, don't you? But it's taking you like maybe someone else points something out or, or you get a new perspective and it just changes how you look at the world fundamentally. And when you read it back, you're like, well, that just seems a bit stupid because you're new, the new you understands that, don't you? But the old new, obviously, it was a fundamental learning when you learn it. All those things that I write and articles and stuff like that, it comes from, and the book, it comes from me writing notes for like 10 years. It's not like I just come up, up in my head. I just like writing stuff down to just kind of make sense of the world, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I think journaling is a very, very important tool because it helps to be able to, one, help you to think introspective. But like you said, there are going to be lots of thoughts that you have, which might not make sense at the moment. Yeah. When you go back to them, it's like, oh, wow, that's, that makes more sense. Or it doesn't make sense. Or there's a dream I had or all I had years ago, which I thought about, but I actually have accomplished. And at that point in time, I thought it was impossible. So Journaling is a massive, massive thing. I'm a do you do, you do it? Is it something you you practice yourself? It's something I practice myself. I've tried the whole try and do it every day, and that doesn't work for me. So at the moment, I am up to four days a week. That's, <laughs> That's what we've got to go to. What about you? Do you do it every single day? No, I think the thing I've learned is that I've tried to build in habits, not processes. Because I'm quite generally, I'm quite a disorganized person, but I'm quite instinctive. So I follow my instincts. The way to organize myself was to become process driven. So like exercise is really important for me. So I used to be like every morning, I have to go for a run every morning. And then if I didn't go for a run, I didn't feel great. And I realized like the thing that I'm doing to make myself feel better is making myself not feel so good. So it's like... So to, uh, the reason I'm answering your question in a long-winded way is that the old me probably would have said, right, I need to, to write something down once a day. Now I do it like when I feel like it's a good thing to do. And then I'll just do you use Google Keep at all. I know that's a really tactical little advice. No, I use Pencil. Yeah, I imagine they're similar types of things. But the reason I use Google Keep is that it's on my phone and it's on my desktop. So I've got like maybe 15 different things that I'm writing at once. But I don't know, where, there's no plan when I finish them. But if I something pops into my head about that thing, I chuck it in that file and then I come back to it like down the line. I'm actually looking to go good keep actually. I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, it's useful. And then you can share one. So say me and you decide, like as we, like, we were talking off there about the Caribbean, let's say we're going to go and watch the cricket. We create one called Car- Caribbean Cricket Dream and then we just keep putting little things in there and then eventually you've got your little document. That's one to look out for. And uh, moving on for that that role you had, the one you had after the the Guardian that you wrote in the book around, you thought it was yeah. a dream job, and then it turned out yeah. not to be. Uh, what was it around that role that initially attracted you to, and then you realised quickly that nah, this is not the one. It was logos essentially. You get your jobs, and you look at the big bright lights, don't you? Uh, like I was going to get to work with KFC, Marks and Spencers, and Dyson. That, that's what attracted me. 
And I thought that that's what I needed, like in my career. I thought if I go and work on those three brands. So for those that don't know me, it was like a planner buyer role within a media agency. And I thought if I leave the Guardian and I go there, uh, my life's going to be sorted because I'm going to work on these three cool brands. But then when I got there, the culture was just terrible. And then like my thing that I know is if I start clock watching. So I found that like a day took a long time. And that never happens to me. And then I just knew, I knew on day one, there's just a few things I thought, ah, oh, this is terrible. This is not my, and I suppose it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Sometimes something is what you think you want, isn't it? And then you get it and it's like, turns out to be the opposite. And all I'd say to anyone listening is that don't be afraid to just say you're wrong. It's cool to change your mind because that's what I had to do because I told all my friends and my family that's what I was going to do, but I knew that I was going to be unhappy doing it. That's the one of the hardest that I think I find people struggle with. It's that admission of I was wrong or that was the wrong, that was the wrong rule for me, especially when you told everyone else. So then it becomes that external pressure of I can't look like that to my friends. I can't look like a failure to my friends. And therefore you just get your head down and you keep on doing something that, you know, you're not internally happy with, but you're trying to please other people. And it just never makes any sense to me. So true. I, I think I had the advantage of I've never been excellent at anything. So I would say, like, if you put it into sports term, I was always like the 12th best. Or if it was rugby, I was the 16th best. So I never had the pressure of ever being the best at anything. But I knew if I worked really hard at stuff, I could get better and get involved in stuff. I'm used to doing stuff and it not working. So I do think you get some people, especially not blaming parents here, but they'll put parents will put people on a certain track, won't they? And they achieve and achieve and achieve. And they get to that point when they're not happy, but they don't, because they've always been achieving, always been good at stuff. It's, it's really difficult for, and I don't know why I'm sticking up for the people who are just naturally good at everything. But it's harder, isn't it, if you've always done well at something to then say, oh, this isn't working for me. Whereas I've never really done anything really well. So it's okay for me to go, oh, yeah, that's just, that's not for me. So I think I learned by not being the best. <laughs> don't know if that, that makes sense. It does make sense, but it's a very interesting way of looking at it because actually that also forms a sense of resilience that helps you to, to step outside your comfort zone and try new things. I mean, the yeah. example of that is when you co-founded Four Ps. Yeah, I mean that was you started that in the in the recession. What was that like when having that conversation? And we're going to start a business. The recession kicks in. Hmm. Where's this going to go for us? Yeah. Well, the good thing is when we started it, the recession didn't start till a few weeks later. <laughs> <laughs> When we started it, we didn't know the recession was coming. So that made that part easier, but it did make it scary. But the, any kind of recession, pandemic, whatever it is, it chucks all the marbles up and it does move everything around. So I think it, I don't think recessions are important, but I think chucking the marbles up and, uh, and moving around the status quo is useful because you think about those big marketing agencies like Saatchi, it was like a closed shop almost. But then when a recession comes along, everyone focuses back on success. And when you're starting out in a recession, people go look for new ideas and new opportunities and they give new people an opportunity. Mm. Um, so although initially it wasn't great, but then we suddenly worked out, well, we haven't got anything anyway, so we haven't got anything to lose. Whereas all the big guys are thinking, oh my God, we've got all this to lose. So we could just make decisions about like what is the best for the future. It's a bit like now, isn't it? If you don't have a big office, you don't need to be worried about whether you, what you're going to do with your big office next year. Mm -hmm. You can just work out what the best thing is to do. Whereas if you're HSBC and you've got that big building down in Canary Wharf, 
Like you've got some big planning and decisions to be made, but when you don't have a big office, you don't have to worry about it because you can just work out what the best thing is to do. So I think some change is, is good for the is, is good for the entrance, the new people, the underdogs, the, the, the smaller people. You didn't come from from money, and I know you had to make a lot of sacrifices to get that going. And I think, especially now, when you have a lot of people who are starting new businesses, it's always very interesting or important to talk about the, the sacrifices and difficulty of starting a new business. And what was yeah. that like? What was that for you? Well, my so my so for those that don't know me, my family are Irish immigrants. My dad grew up in Brixton. What they got into is like pubs and stuff. And there's actually a, I don't know if I told you about this show, but he had a sign behind his desk basically because. Irish people were really discriminated against at that point. And there used to be a lot of signs, um, and there is a photo of it somewhere. Um, they would say things like, no Irish, but basically it would say either no Irish, no blacks, no Jewish apply for jobs. And there was different various ones, just complete bullshit. But my granddad actually got one of those Irish ones and put it behind him. It was like, like imagine it behind me now. <laughs> so when people came in for interview, even though he was Irish, it was like an ironic like thing. It said something like no blacks, no Jews, no Irish on it. So people would come in and they'd be like, what's going on here? <laughs> but he was making a statement against how ridiculous that is because obviously he was hiring people from all, all communities. Mm. Yeah. My, so my dad's from Brixton. He just wanted to become a farmer. That was like his thing. So he worked really hard to become a farmer. But then when we were growing up, I don't know if you remember it, but it was like foot and mouth. And yeah, so basically most farmers, if you meet any other farmer other than me and my brothers and my sisters, normally they've inherited that farm. So like they normally come through like the system. But that was my dad's thing to, to get that. I suppose it's kind of prepared us for the pandemic. But then when I was growing up, literally that just destroyed our family because we literally had no money growing up because of foot and mouth and mad cow disease because it just destroyed those industries. I think that what that gave me is I never had like stuff like football boots and things like that. So I know, I, as an adult, I've not like chased them. I just don't, all, all I need is my friends and my mates and my family and a few people. So I think that was really good because on a farm, you work seven days a week, including Christmas day because <laughs> you've got to feed animals. So I've, I've never had a mindset of like hard work. I don't see it as hard work because I, I love what I do. All I can't do is stuff that I don't like, which is why I left that job. So it's a bit like that thing. If you find your passion, you'll never work a day again. And that's how I feel. Mm. Um, and I think that came through watching like my family, the way they were treated as immigrants and then seeing, see like my parents work hard and then think, oh, okay, you can, if you work hard, in your own time, you can make you can make a difference. So that helped then easily navigate the different objections and obstacles that came across your way, or did you still find it tough? I, I was looking back through, um, I think it's the last podcast you recorded with Samuel Brooksworth, uh, built building your own table. I really resonated with the title of that because you can basically play everyone else's game, can't you? And be told you're not good enough or whatever, or you can just play your own game. <laughs> And that's the way I, I, when I saw that title, I was like, oh, geez, I love that title. Like, cause that, that, I think that appeals to so many people, which is you can play the game that is set up to be set up in a particular way. Um, or you can just make your own game up. That's the, that's what Steve Jobs is. Uh, have you watched the Steve Jobs movie? 
Yeah. There's a bit in it when he says like certain, there's a point in, in everyone's life when they realize that everything that's built before them wasn't built by someone smarter or more intelligent than them. Mm-hmm. And that you can start pushing things here and something will move there and you can push that and that will change. Whereas when you're born, you're really fixed, aren't you? That this is the world, the way the world is. And that's where you get into things like inequality and discrimination and, and stuff like that. And certain people are held back more and that's where you get white privilege and everything. But once you start discovering that and you realize it's a game, you can try and create your own game, which doesn't always work for everyone. But the, but the one thing that I've learned is that if you are friends with another entrepreneur, you're 55% more likely to start your own business. I was always exposed to that world that it wasn't always about getting a job and a career. And a job and a career means that you've got to play someone else's game. It's like... My wife had a job interview the other day, and I haven't had a job interview for about 15 years. And I heard someone interviewing her because it's at home on Zoom. And I was listening to I was thought, this, this interview is not a nice person. And I was just, I was thinking that even the interview process is you've got to play someone else's game, but haven't you? And obviously they're offering you a job, but it doesn't mean you can be rude to someone just because you're interviewing them. And I, and I haven't spoken about it in the pandemic because I think it's insensitive. But when you've been through mad cow disease and foot and mouth and seen a pandemic, like... For those that hadn't been on a farm, you had to like disinfect leaving the farm and stuff like that. And travel was restricted. So if you lived on a farm at one point, you couldn't travel into America and so on. So I'm not saying I've experienced the pandemic before, but I've experienced a different kind of pandemic where I was restricted. So I think it's like anything, isn't it? If you've done something similar to that, you can lend on other experiences. I haven't really talked about it because... There's a lot. There's just a lot of people got to deal with at the moment. They don't want to hear about what you can learn from the farm farmers. Um, <laughs> I do think I learned a lot from those experiences. Yeah, but that's the value of having lived experience, isn't it? That it builds yeah. resilience in each and every one of us, and it doesn't always look the same to everyone. But that doesn't mean that you can't lean on them. It doesn't mean that other people can't learn from them because that experience oh. that you went through many years ago prepared you for now. Just like other people yeah, go through yeah. stuff in their lives and prepare them for things that might happen in the future. So it's never something yeah. to be dismissed. And if people don't want to listen to it, that's, that's up to them, isn't it? Yeah. No, no, that's a good point. Good point, Shepin. Did um, the happiness index come about when you were at Four Peaks? It came through tough times, really, which is we were growing rapidly because we were, we were riding like the Facebook and Twitter wave of like those new media worlds. So again, they create a change. And when there's new stuff, like we were 25 years old, people go to the young people who know how this stuff works. So anyone that is a younger person listening to us, just see change as opportunity and these new, like TikTok, I forgot how TikTok works. I love TikTok. I'm watching TikTok videos all the time. Like my wife communicates to me via TikTok. But to go on there and, and be a TikTok, like explain how it works, I couldn't now. But if, somebody, if you get TikTok, you've suddenly got a service there that you can offer people. Basically, we, as we were growing the business, when you've got like four employees and say four customers, you can phone them all up in a day and ask them how they are. Really relatively easy. But as we were growing, we started to lose track on what, whether our employees and customers were happy. So we built an internal tool to track how happy our employees and customers were because we had a saying that, that we stole from Richard Branson which is customers don't come first. That's what we used to tell all our customers. Customers don't come first. Employees come first. We will look after our team. We'll look after them so well that they will look after you really well because they know how to be treated because we've treated them well. They'll treat you well. Um, But if you're a geek like myself, 
we refuse to it's a, just a weird mindset which is if someone says something you always want to know like where's the data on that then people come out with statements all the time don't they like like we were talking about football like passing football just passing it around more times than your opponent is that actually better because mm. there's no scoring system for that is there at the end of the day it's who scores the most amount of goals they don't give like um, Man City extra points because they passed it more so if I, in that sort of world, I just want to know what the data is behind it. And that's, we wanted to know, like, intuitively, I'd been taught by my parents that if, if someone works for you, the, your, your job, and then I think this, come, this is an outdated term now, and I think this comes from an immigrant mindset, but my parents taught me that if someone works for you, your job is to help that person better themselves. I think that comes from a, more of a, like, like, we've moved over here, you've got to help your friends better their position. But I think if you translated that into 2021, it would be the sort of stuff that you talk about, Shopee, around improving and developing and, and that kind of stuff. So now I just updated that. That means to me, how if someone works for you, how do you help them improve? And But, but the problem with both the statements is you have to admit at some point that they may not be in your company. And that's where I think a lot of companies go wrong because sometimes the best place for that person to improve is to move on. Sometimes that doesn't serve your needs as an employer, as a company, because you want that person to stay. But for people to truly buy into you, I think people have to think, right, that person ultimately cares about my development. And they will tell me the day that actually, you know what, we don't have an office in Shanghai, but you want to learn all about the Chinese ecosystem of e-commerce, then it's best for you to go. And, uh, but I think that's a hard thing for people to get their heads around. Yeah, and that goes back into what you talked about previously around valuing the human. So rather than yeah. seeing people as commodities, you see them as human beings. And when you do it that way, you come from a position of, I want what's best for you, rather yeah. than what's best for me, what's best for the organization, what's best for the company. It's more actually, like you said, if you're moving away from us, then I'm going to yeah. support you and help you to do that rather than hold on to you because you're the great at what you do and you make me more money. So why would I want to lose you for? And I think Dara O'Brien does stand-up comedy about it. Do you know Dara O'Brien? He does this thing about Irish jokes. He's like, it's almost like in 1985, so, sorry, when the internet came around, someone, someone sent an email around and said, no more Irish jokes because they were like, they were just prominent, weren't they? And then they just disappeared. But I think going back, that does come when you, if, imagine if you move over and you see jobs saying no Irish people need apply, you're going to feel like you're a commodity, aren't you? You'd be like, what? I've got something that I can offer here and you don't want me to apply because of the country that I'm from. Everyone's influenced by stuff that happens in their family. And I think that comes from that. Like, and knowing what it's like to be treated like a commodity makes you think, I don't want someone else to be treated like a commodity. So you take, you're taking, a, hopefully, a negative situation and turn it into a positive. And what was the impetus of moving from Happiness Index being created in, in 4Ps to actually spinning up as an own company? I mean, you sold up, you exited, you got some yeah. money... You're living the dream, as some people would like to say. <laughs> and then a yeah. couple months later, you're back in a new company. Yeah, I think good, good old-fashioned entrepreneurship. Like, I don't think entrepreneurs talk about the role of money as much. I don't think many entrepreneurs don't set out to, to make money. But it, is an, it, it does impact your thinking because 
the reason we first, when people first started to ask to buy the happiness index, we said, no, you can't buy that product because it's an internal tool. Mm-hmm. But after a while, in a month period, when a hundred people ask you that question, you suddenly think, ah, oh, there's a business opportunity here. The happiness index wasn't made to make money. But if there wasn't an ability to make money there, it probably never would have got off the ground. That's where entrepreneurship works, isn't it? Because it's a, it goes back to what you were saying about the, the long hours and the hard work. There needs to be um, like a recognition that of, of what's coming back from that. So there was a commercial realization in our heads that there is something that people want to buy here. But the problem is, and then it goes back into the happiness research, Eventually, that won't energize you. That uh, will get until year one, year two. There has to be a real purpose behind it. So, all of a sudden, when you realize, oh, there's an opportunity here that I could do something that is like the most amazing thing ever, like work in happiness. When people find out that you work in happiness, everyone's like, what the, oh my God, I want to work in happiness. It's like unbelievable. And so to work in, a, in an area and get paid for it is unbelievable because at the end of the day, I'm a dad and I've got two young children and I've got to pay the bills. So there needs to be a commercial aspect to the business. Um, and then when we saw that there, we thought, wow, we can actually make money in an area that is actually something that we're passionate about. And that's where I encourage people, it's not to say that you're motivated by money because I'm not either, but you should also be allowed to acknowledge it um, that it plays a part because we've all got to pay the bills. We may want to change the system around whether it's a capitalist country or a socialist country or whatever, but there is a system there that we've either got to become revolutionaries and bring that system down or we can try and do some good within the system and change it as we go. So there was just a really obvious commercial opportunity and we thought, right, let's go. It's a bit like we, we liken it to... If you're in a gambling, if you're in Vegas or whatever, and you win some money off a table and you go, you know what, I'm going to go all again, all in again. <laughs> and that's what we kind of did. We sold the first business and we thought, okay, we could chill here, but we're still really young. So let's go all in again, which was, it was important for us to go all in again because I don't have a savings bank with any money in it, which I think it also motivates you to move forward. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, back to, I'm back to zero. I'm like, right, okay. Which, again, it's the, it's the importance of talking about money. It's, to not worry about money is privilege. And I think it's important for me to know that I put all my money in as well to make sure that there's net. That I, I never wanted to doubt that I would take it easy, even though I don't think I'm that type of personality anyway. What was that conversation like with, with you and your wife? Because first time when you guys created four Ps, you and your co-founder, she looked after mm. you and... And held things down, things things that's a good position. You got yeah. through the other side of that, and then and now you're like, I'm going to go again. Well, yeah, good thing. So there was other options that were more riskier than this that I'm doing. You know, the old like, I think it's, is it Boston Matrix where you got like do something in a market that you know, and then you've got like do something in a market that you don't know, and then you've got like new market. Da, da, da. So I saw it as a set on a in terms of risk level. I could have done the same thing, aka data marketing in the same market and that would have been low risk for me. What I'm doing is data and insight in a new area, which is with HR professionals and people data. It's employee engagement and employee happiness data. So I'm taking my existing skills into a new market. So on a level of risk, but there was a third level of risk that as I presented it to my wife, which was something completely new that I would never have done before and had no skills in a new market. 
So we had a chat about it and she did say to me that I would not, I'd prefer if you didn't do that super risky one. <laughs> and without going into it, the pandemic would have killed that business. It, it was more, it was more location based. So, but you got, I look at us as a team. You got to look, you got to weigh it all up, haven't you? And then she had to weigh up my things. And I probably would have done the happiness index, but. I did consult her and we did look at the different risk levels, basically. Oh, that's brilliant. And it's, I love to hear that. And the fact that you're saying that we are, we are a team. Because a lot of times in entrepreneurial land, it's recognizing the fact that a lot of the pressures that you're going through, your partner's also going to feel it, whether you recognize it or not. Yeah. So that's um, really good that you've highlighted that. And I guess one of the things that has come up is when you talk about happiness at work, generally speaking, it's seen as a fluffy metrics. Uh, what's yeah. happiness and business got to kind of do together? And as someone who is a self-confessed data geek, like I thought I might as well ask you that question. Is happiness a fluffy yeah. metric? So I'll just bring out the two bits, the, the best two bits of data that I love, which I'd encourage everyone to go and look up. So the first bit is by, by the actually the NHS in the UK. And if you took two hospitals exactly the same, the one with the unhappier employees would have a higher death rate. So straight away, that just answers your question, Shafi, doesn't it? Like it impacts death rate, but it also impacts infection rate. And some of the work that I've loved that you've done, Shopee, and that I've sort of tried to share when I see it and stuff like that and, and, and shout your name about is when we talk about... Um, some people think that when we talk about happiness, that it's disconnected to a conversation around discrimination and race, uh, because they sound like two different things, don't they? If you take like, if you take like the murder of George Floyd, you think if you if you're talking about that scenario and you're talking about happiness, you probably think that you're talking about two so wildly different events, right? But when I interviewed the person who did that research in the NHS, discrimination also impacts death rate. So when you look at it, you start and going back to the fluffy bit, it's, it's, so, it's, it's one of these things, you know, like if I wrote it down now, if I wrote it down in my journal now and said, if you are racist to someone, it will make them unhappier and they won't be as good at their job, right? If I wrote that down now, like the new me who knows that would be like, well, that's just obvious. But it's not obvious to everyone that these things are linked but once you start to see the data come through, it becomes obvious, doesn't it? Because if you were discriminated on any level at work and made to feel less comfortable at work than your peers, you're just not going to perform better. And whether that, whether you're a doctor or whether you do the bins, that your, your job, you're not going to be as good at your job. So the first bit is that that's just to blow the conversation out of the water. But some people then say, oh, but I don't, I'm not a hospital, I'm a business, I've got to make money. Um, there's 28 years of data in America that shows that if you treat your employees well, you will outperform the stock market by a minimum 2.5 per year. And it's not um, 2.5 over 28 years, that's 2.5 times 28. So that's every year. Every year. Yeah, every year. So... And like I always, I always take it back to like compare it with sports. Like if there was a drug out there that, that sports people would get hold of that is doing all this stuff, like allowing people to perform better, they'd be desperate to get hold of it. 
but all this drug is goes back to what what you you love put it perfectly Shopee is making sure someone's not treated like a commodity mm. and that's what we when we roll our data up and try and describe it to people we call it freedom to be human and that's what that's our summary point sometimes people think it's like a marketing statement we've made up it's like based on neuroscience that says if you feel like a human being at work and you can be yourself you'll perform better and it's backed up by the data every time so all these things seem disconnected like racism discrimination happiness equality and all that kind of stuff but the more you look at it it's obvious that they're connected and part of the same thing because it's all about how you're treated as a human being even with all that data that you have that's obvious to people that you can break it down to them do you still ever get pushback from organizations who refuse to buy into it and practice like cognitive dissonance oh all the time (laughs) I, um, I did a presentation at a big law firm recently and um, the lady um, who booked me, uh, it runs the business. And afterwards, like her employees loved it. And she said to me, she said to me privately, she sort of whispered it to me. She was like, yeah, but Matt, happy people don't work very hard, do they? <laughs> I've just completely failed in my presentation because you don't get, you're not getting it. It's not getting cut through. But what, what I realized is... When I had my sabbatical after the first business, mm. I realized that I wasted, over a 10-year period, I wasted 50% of my time. That's what I worked out. What I realized is that, so we were working on digital transformation and the businesses that we were working on, so if you take like brands like Gymshark, who were like natural g- digital transformers, those companies are thriving now. All the companies that I tried to get to digitally transform, they never wanted to transform they just were not interested in changing their businesses. And I realized when I took my time off that all the companies, basically the companies I worked with that willingly wanted to work with us were a success. And the ones that were like resisting, they just weren't a success. And then I, and, and then I suddenly realized when I got into this new world, to answer your question, there are people that intuitively like the leader of that law firm who don't believe in this stuff. So now... Rather than try and convince the non-convincers, I save that time and I reallocate it to people that actually give a damn about this stuff. So um, in summary, I think one, to answer your question, I think one third of people intuitively get it. If you treat people well, they'll perform better. They just get it. I don't know whether it comes from their parents or their upbringing or whatever. They just get it. One third will get it if you show them the data. Some people are so, like, they're just ingrained in data. And you, if you show them the numbers, they go, oh, okay, that makes sense, Matt, we'll do that. And they're on board. But there's one third who just don't get it. And I can even waste my, a third of my time um, a day. So let's, do, let's, uh, let's, let's say a nine-hour day, just keep the math simple, three, six, nine. I reallocate that one and a half to the other two bits. So I basically, the way I look at it is I've got another three hours working with the people that care about it and the people that get data and I don't bother with the other ones and I just my daughter and I have got a bit addicted to watching uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin's Bone Crusher obstacle course thing I don't even speak <laughs> don't watch it with your children right it's so much swearing it's terrible but when they when they get have you watched it Shofi yeah, so I was thinking when you said your daughter, I was like, "What?" It's terrible. You know when they get, you know when they lose. It's Stone Cold just says, "I'll see you down the road." He just goes, "I'll see you down the road." That's what I think now. I just like 
I'll see you down the road. I'm not, I just, it's cool. We'll, we can still be friends and we can chat and you can come to me, but I'm not going to waste my, that, that one third of my time. I'll just see you down the road. I just don't consist. You're the only other person I've met who's watched that show. It's terrible. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I'm i so on board with that, you know, to be honest, because it's, why would I waste my time trying to repeatedly convince people who just refuse to yeah. get it? I mean, the data's in front of them. You refuse to listen to it. Yeah. The emotional side of things is definitely not there. So you're just wasting your time. So you might as well focus on the other areas or other people who you can do something with. And eventually those who choose not to get on board will lose. Yeah, I mean, it's that like whole Netflix blockbuster conversation, or even those who you talked about who refused the digital transformation, who were like, we can't do this. Well, yeah. they've had to. They've, a lot of organizations, especially over the last year, have had to adapt digitally in ways they said categorically they would never do. Absolutely. Because you either adapt or you die out. Yeah. It's just that simple, isn't it? And the problem is, in the customer world that I used to work in, bad customer service is like a slap in the face. So... If you get bad customer service, you, it's normally reported or complained about, and then the management team can deal with it and you fix it quickly because customers vote with their feet. If you're a restaurant and you consistent bad customer service, people tell their friends they don't come back. The problem with um, treating employees badly, it's like a cancer because we've got, as employees, most of us have got responsibilities like the mortgage or the rent or stuff to deal with. So there's a, there's a power advantage that an employer has, as in they might have treated you terribly in that day, but you might have two kids. You might be a single parent with two kids to feed. So you are not you're not always in a situation where you could do what I did when I was like, you know what, I'm going to go and do something else. When I started Four Ps, I didn't have anything to pay other than myself, and I had a partner that was prepared to look after me financially. Not everyone's in that situation. That's like that. That was a privilege of the situation that I was in. So employees have a power burst over. So unfortunately, treating employees badly is like a slow cancer, as opposed to treating customers badly. And you can't see it, but over time, the best people drip out over years and leave, and that knowledge leaves, and the companies are slowly dying from the inside. The problem is, it's hurting those individuals, and and. And, and that's where we get this sort of mental health ticking time bomb and, and so on. But the shift in power has slightly changed because we've got technology now. And, and, and that's where if you, if it, all these movements that have happened around the world have been enabled by technology because you can group up, can't you? You can group up as people and say, no, 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 this is going on. This is not right. And technology has allowed that to happen. And that's, that's happening in the workforce now. We see it every single day. How do you scale happiness? Because going back even to technology, so right now we're in this period of having a conversation around remote working, hybrid working, all of that. And one of the things that a lot of organizations are saying is, well, as data shows, for you to have more happiness, you need to be around more people. So they're using that as a pushback. You just talked around technology. So how do you scale happiness using technology in a digital world, in a hybrid kind of environment? Yeah. So the first thing is to do is to test everyone's assumptions, right? Because the problem with data is if you heard of that saying lies, damn lies, and statistics. Mm-hmm. So people tend to like to use data to, to reinforce the argument that they've already decided that that's what, what the outcome is. So you've got to use the data to test assumptions. So 
there are certain employee data sets that are happier during the pandemic than before the pandemic. The example that we use a lot is engineers. So a lot of my workforce are engineers and technical development type people. They don't want to be sitting in an open plan office with people like me, going around, asking them what they think of the football tonight. They're, that's why they wear headphones, so people like me don't talk to them. And they're happier. So what happens is people come up with a blanket, they get data and then they'll take a blanket, their view, and force it. So if there's somebody who thinks they should be a work-from-home company, they go, yeah, it's all about work-from-home. If they're uh, getting everyone in the office, they'll be like, ah, oh, skip out getting everyone in the office. What we know from the data is that 100% of people want flexibility. That can fit in any type of role because if you take a role that people say, oh, you can't work from home for. So what people are doing is they mix up the office work from home conversation with the flexibility conversation. So if you're a security guard who works at Asda, you can't work from home (laughs) if your job is to stand outside the front of Asda, okay? But that doesn't mean your company can't offer you flexibility, so if I go back to myself as a baggage handler, um, I couldn't baggage handle from home, right? But you can offer people flexibility to change their shifts. Or let's say me and you are baggage handlers, that we can agree, you trust us, that we can agree that we can swap our shifts. So I'm just trying to unpick, to answer your question, unpick some things that people confuse together, which is... The environment where you do your work is one thing and flexibility is a different thing. Um, and you can offer that. To, that's what people want. And people are trying to use data to reinforce their whatever their thing is that they think should be. Whereas what the data says is 100% of people want flexibility. So how do you then bridge the gap using tech and creating happiness in your organization where people might not necessarily be in the same physical location. So for the listeners, an employee engagement and happiness platform. I think what it does, it creates empathy for your colleagues because we're in a different life stage at the moment where like, we want to see our kids and all this kind of stuff. But when you're starting in your career, you, you might just want to be back in London and go to the pubs and stuff. It's a different stage. See, but the problem with all of us as humans is that we think... Most people want to do it like we do. And we think, well, probably 80% of people are like us. And then you get the weirdos over there are a bit different and all this kind of stuff. But as soon as you collect it, what I think what it does, it gives you emotional intelligence at scale. Because as soon as you start, I would say a good example uh, for me in this, from my own personal learning, is the understanding of Islam and, and drinking. So when we started our company, as we mentioned before, we were 25 all we wanted to do back then was go out and party and drink. But as our company grew, I suddenly had these people that were coming to me telling me that they don't drink for religious reasons. Like the thing that was our strength, people were joining us because it was like party town. And then I suddenly realized I got really good, awesome people working for me. That was putting them off. They didn't want the, the big company event to be built around alcohol. So that's on a small scale. But imagine you, like some of our clients... Have got in just in London, they employ workforces that've got that speak a hundred different languages. So suddenly, you've got all these people around the world that think differently. And I think what data does, it allows you to get emotional intelligence at scale, so you can pull up a report and go, "Oh, okay, this is how people are feeling." And it's it's a word that I learned from you: lived experience. 
you can actually see people's lived experience rather than or trying to guess what you think that their experience is. Because our assumption was, if you come here, you'll love it. Because not only do you get to work here, then you get there's loads of free beer and stuff, which was that era back then. I've just finished a, a year of not drinking. As I've changed and look at things differently, but the more data you have, you don't necessarily have to learn that the hard way. You can actually read about it and actually go, okay, do you know what? There's 20% of our workforce there want us to make sure that we do the big company update in between school hours because they want to be able to do the school drop. Having it at 3.30 is really annoying people that want to pick their children up, as an example. But you might be missing that. That's another thing we... Well, when we did that, when we had that era of like the party era, we moved to the family era. So we put in like a crash for kids and stuff. Um, and we kept evolving our culture as we went based on our own lived experience. But now looking back, you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to go through every experience because you can't go through everyone's experience. But if you've got data, you can start to see, see the lived experience and how like me and you, we don't know. The, unless something happens, it's very unlikely that me and you will understand the lived experience if somebody's blind, as an example. So you can't live like the way a small company does if you're a big company. It's okay to learn as you go in a small company, but in a big company, you need to get that whole lived experience so that you can build an employee experience um, to do that. And that's what AI and the happiness index and stuff does, I suppose. What was your decision behind being alcohol free for you? It's again, it's the data thing, which is when I scaled the first business, I didn't have children. And when I was doing the second business, I suddenly had children and I thought something's got, something's got to give. Like I can't be a really good dad, a really good entrepreneur, a really good party boy and so on and so on. And I just trialed it. I just trialed it. And then I realized that if I, when I drink, I don't sleep as well. But I sleep as well. That has an impact on everything. And ironically, yesterday, this week is the last time I've started drinking again. And you're the first person for me, to, um, you're the first person I'm telling this to is that I've decided as of uh, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm just going to knock it on the head forever. That's my data driven approach. I'm done. Like, even when I'm looking at myself here, I'm looking at my skin and I'm thinking, oh, I look a bit sweaty. Because <laughs> I had a drink yesterday, I don't like it. I just now I'm a dad. I look at my kids and I think they don't drink and they're having a great time. Um, so I feel like I've just I've done the. I'm four. Uh, this is how geek I am. I'm four point two percent happier when I don't drink. <laughs> I measured it for a year. I was like, what? Four point two percent? Yeah, I measured it for a year. My my happiness. I am happier when I don't drink. Wow. The last question would be, what is leadership to you? How do you define leadership? It is, I'm trying to think of the words, but it's example. You can say all day long what you think someone should be doing, but you've got to set an example. And I don't mean you've got to do everything. You've got to set, you've got to set the example, haven't you? Like, I can't work in happiness and not do all these experiments. Like, I think that's one of the, one of the myths of, of Greek uh, philosophy is that it's like, just a thinking thing that you think about. I think what the Greeks saw philosophy as is part thinking, part do. I think that's how I understand it. So I think leadership is theory, but it's also practice. It's, you've got to practice it and you've got to get out there. So if you stand for something, you better be out there practicing it. Otherwise, people see through it, don't they? And 
it gets mistaken with workload and I think there's a I naturally work long hours but I now make sure I'm very very careful about when I'll message my team and so on and so on because one I don't want to be looking like I'm showing off about the hours and I don't want them to feel like they should so I think you have to be clear what you stand for but then you actually have to act like that don't you otherwise I think there's a lot of brands being in the press recently haven't they that they portray one thing in their brand and under, under the surface it's very different that's the pun back to the whole integrity authenticity and which is why I love and we really want to talk to you and you just showcase that with the way that you're actually living your life with the way that you're running your company and what's the best place people can find out more about you about the happiness index and actually get involved and get some data for the organization which is so needed well as you know like I, I, we've taken a massive gamble recently and what we've decided to do going back to your point rather than telling people what we do we've decided we've created this new thing so any company can sign up to use the happiness index for free for three months uh, it's a massive gamble for us because it obliterates our entire sales pipeline because if you're on our sales pipeline now and you're listening to this you're not going to sign a contract for three months because you can cut, get it for free now but the, the gamble is we have a very high retention rate with customers. Normally, if people sign up with the Happiness Index, they're a client for life. So anyone can go to thehappinessindex.com, book a demo, and you can use us and our team for free for three months. And our gamble is that we think that if you can afford it and you love what we do, that you'll continue being a customer. So yeah, simple as that now. I don't have to tell anyone. It's, it's made my life easier because people go, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, just go and try it. Try it. Go and have a, go and have a play, see what you like. And if it, if it works for your business, then we let people know commercially beforehand so there's no surprises. But if it's working for you, continue with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Leadership. You can check out the show notes on www.mindsetshift.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you can find out more about my guests and how you can contact them. You can listen to old episodes, or if you have a question about this episode or any other episodes, you can just press a button and ask me that question and I'll answer it on the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, share this podcast with someone else. We'll see you next time everyday leadership.